Welcome, podcast listeners, once again to Booth One. I'm here with my sidekick and friend, as always, the world traveler and Broadway aficionado, Roscoe. Roscoe, say hello to the folks. Hello, folks. How are you? <laughs> that was that was sincere. <laughs> Howdy. Now, on our last podcast, we talked about our separate New York trips a lot and what we went to see and who we saw and who we got seen by and what our Booth One experiences were. But some of that stuff just didn't have time to get covered. And so we're going to pick up where we left off and do a little bit more of that. I wanted to ask you about a few of the other shows that you went to see. Now, you went to see a show with someone in it who, well, I've been kind of in love with from a long distance (laughs) for for many, many years. Kira Knightley, uh, movie actress, beautiful, gorgeous movie actress. She was in a show, and I'm not going to even pronounce the name of it because I can't pronounce the name of it. It's an Emile Zola novel, is it it not? Yes, from the 1860s. Teresa? Therese Rakeen, I believe is how it's pronounced. Can I ask you a question, though? You may. If you could take one person... Out for dinner to Cafe Carlisle, and I'm 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 foreshadowing here. And you had to choose between Carly Fiorino and Kira Knightley. Who would you take? Kira Knightley. <laughs> All right. I should say Carly Fiorina because she'd probably be able to pay the bill. Yes, <laughs> she, could, she could buy the place. She could buy the place. And, well, tell and it. Well, I, go ahead. All right. And I insisted that we continue. This is my fault if we're belaboring our exciting New York experiences. But there was just so much to talk about, and I guarantee you, you'll be on the edge of your seat with this story. I'm already nearing the edge of my all seat. Right. I had something happen at a Broadway theater that I've never had happen in all my years of going to Broadway shows, including a few years ago when I went to see a revival of The Seagull and Hillary Clinton sat behind me. There were some some um, Secret Service people wandering through the theater, then they left or stood in the back or something and the show started and no one, it's New York, so no one really bothered that Hillary Clinton was there. So you may have read about this. Kira Knightley is doing Therese Rakeen, I think that's how it's pronounced, on Broadway, it's her Broadway debut. It's a big deal. The night of the very first preview, there was a lunatic in the audience who began shouting and screaming five minutes into the show about how Kira Knightley should marry him and Jesus was coming and was incredibly disruptive. He was in the mezzanine and apparently he had to be tackled and pinned into a seat until more security could come upstairs and carry, they had to carry him hand and feet out of the theater. Did they stop the show? The actors tried to continue, and then a voice came over the loudspeaker saying, ladies and gentlemen, we will pause for a moment and then start the show again. That would be the stage manager. They stopped the show, took a pause, got everyone composed, and then continued. And much to her credit, everyone said that Keira Knightley seemed completely unrattled and unfazed by what had just happened to her. So I see the show the next night. I see the second preview the night after this has happened. Oh, I was wondering if you were at that show or not, because I knew you were in New York, and I, I read that it had happened, and I knew that you were going to see this show. But you went the next evening. The very next evening, that Friday evening. It was a crazy experience. I showed up at the theater. The police presence was incredible. Everyone was being searched, even handbags. They were looking at the handbags. 
I walk into the theater. I sit down. Throughout the entire show, there are security people lining the edges of the auditorium. So it, there must have been four men on either side of the auditorium. Again, it's a Broadway theater. It's not a huge house. Large, brutal-looking men. So it's a bit unnerving to watch a play while, while eight men are staring at you for signs of lunacy. Doesn't that seem a little, like, overkill just because of one guy in the mezzanine who expressed his love for her? I, I, I guess, but in this day and age, I mean, I, I, if I was a Kira Knightley, or, I would be a nervous wreck up there. I mean, what are the odds of someone else well, doing that? I, and I'm sure she was not afraid, and I'm sure she's had this kind of thing before. And he was in the mezzanine. It was going to be difficult for him to storm the but, stage from there. But you heard that he threw, he had a, a big bouquet of flowers which he hurled at the stage. What better place to hurl from <laughs> yes. than the mezzanine? Well, and apparently he had he was quite strong because it was quite quite a throw from in that particular theater and they landed very loudly and I guess the sound of them landing they landed with such a thud that it was rather startling. Mm. Something else I hadn't seen before in the show is uh the a pivotal scene in the play takes place when they're the three main characters are on a rowboat. And so they have actual water on stage, and they're in an actual rowboat. And guess what? The rowboat tips over, and they all fall into the water. What? And Yes. It was the most stunning thing I've ever seen in my life. And it was very impressive. And then two of the characters crawl out of the water, and one of them doesn't. Mic drop, curtain. Boom. <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We're here all week, except yes. for that guy who didn't make it. I did get a ticket for half price at the booth. Good for you. And I was unhappy because I was eight rows back. And I said to the woman at the booth, Will it, could, you know, could I, can I sit closer? I said, I kind of have, you know, like bad eyesight. And she said, I can't split up a pair of tickets this early, which was interesting because I didn't know they had that rule. And then she said, it's in the sixth row, for God's sakes. And I said, I'm being ridiculous, aren't I? And she said, yes. I'm sure she would have reached over and slapped you, except for the double-paned <laughs> bulletproof so glass the at the TKTS yes. booth. Yes. So, so it was kind of thrilling to say that I saw that show. Awesome. And it will, um, it'll be very interesting. We will, we will reconvene on this to see what the critical reception is like and how the sh- And Judith Light was in the show. In a, who, Judith Light She's is a fine, fine actress. An actress who everyone loves. And I'd forgotten this about her. I'm not sure if I can mimic it. She has a magnificent voice for the stage. You know, it's, it's an extremely rich voice full of, with all kinds of colors to it. Like describing her voice is like describing a $200 bottle of wine, you know, with, with little bits of nuance, nuance and flower and perfume. Aroma. And what then, else did you say? Are you familiar with The Ridiculous Theatre Company? I am. So Everett Quinton was one of the leading actors in The Ridiculous Theatre Company, which you know, was founded by Charles Ludlam in the 70s. And they do very camp, far-out productions. This is a show which starred Everett Quinton, who was part of The Ridiculous Theatre going, going back probably close to 40 years. And it's a show called Drop Dead Perfect, which is more or less... Uh, a satire of uh, the kind of movie that Joan Crawford would have made in the 50s, where she plays a, a matronly woman who's obsessed with perfection, but falls in love with a rangy Cuban who shows up at her front door, <laughs> whose name is Ricky. Of and course. one of her neighbors is named Lucy. And the woman across the street is Viv. 
All that was missing was um, Fred Mertz. And hilarious, hilarious hijinks, very camp, full of all kinds of references to movies and early television. And this was a huge hit off-Broadway last year. This is a revival which is now closed. And as funny as this was, the New York Times said that Everett Quinton, the show, is a national treasure. But after seeing the show, I thought, I'm wondering how much longer we'll see shows like this. Because this is a show that, that parodies and satirizes and refers to movies that, that I'm certainly familiar with, my generation, those of us over 40. But at some point, I think the freshness date is going to expire on these kinds of shows, that we won't see them anymore, that they'll have, they'll have played out and they won't be... Well, why so? Because I don't think they'll be timely anymore. You mean the, the, the campiness quality? The campiness. I think really? we're, in a, we're in a post-camp world. Was the theater full? No. Not only was the theater not full, the show had been on... Um, it'd been very easy to get cheap seats for every remaining performance. So even though it did well initially, it didn't do well in the move over. But, it, you know, if I think about people that I know in their 30s or 40s, they've never seen a Joan Crawford movie. They, don't, they have no idea what the show is referring to. I could have taken one of my younger friends to the show and they would have sat there with a blank stare because they wouldn't have understood any of the references. Well, as you know, I, I don't like Joan Crawford, but I get Joan Crawford and I probably yeah. would have enjoyed the show. But you're yeah. right. This is a genre that has a particular niche that you're, you're saying that its day might be over. And it, not just Joan Crawford, Barbara Stanwyck, Rosalind Russell, of course, anybody who made absolutely. films during that period. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it, it gave me pause that maybe this is a, a type of theater tradition we won't see anymore. A lost art form. A lost art form. Though brilliant as he was, mm. and brilliant as they do those productions, mm. you just don't feel that it has long legs. Yeah, uh, maybe it's, it's time has passed. I see. And now we'll be seeing... I don't know, shows that are parody of Friends or something, which is a TV show that I never watched, so I wouldn't understand it. You saw another show. I think this was at The Roundabout. I, 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 I may be wrong about that. The Humans? The Humans, which is by a, an up-and-coming playwright named Stephen Karam. I think that's the right way to say it. The Humans had been done in Chicago last year to great acclaim. So this was its first production in New York. It's about a family getting together in Manhattan, for Thanksgiving, uh, mother, father, two daughters, son-in-law, elderly grandmother who's somewhat demented and ill. And as time progresses, uh, there are revelations about what's really happening in their relationships or their personal life. And the the play, uh, play is by Stephen Cram, who wrote a play called Sons of the Prophet that was done at the same theater a few years ago. He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And he's a young, handsome man and the New York Times... How do you know this? Well, the New York Times had profiled him. <laughs> and see. his photograph was in the newspaper the, uh -huh. the Friday before the Sunday that I saw the show. Okay. So guess who sits next to me at the show? Stephen Karam. Stephen Karam. <laughs> <laughs> the handsome guy who was profiled in the New York yes. Times, who you recognize. Who I recognize. <laughs> and he nicely leans over to me and says... Can you move your ass over in your seat so I can have some leg room? Is that what he said? Get out of my way, Chubbs. <laughs> 
and and to be honest, that was not the seat I was ticketed for. Again, this was a cheap seat, and when you get a cheap seat, they always punish you by putting you in the middle of a row, right? So that you have to suffer from. Well, know, I don't know if it's punishment. It just sort of works out. It that just way. sort of works out that way. Yeah. So he, so, you sit down, and there he is next to you, and he says, and he nicely leans over and says, "Excuse me, you're you're more than welcome to stay there if you want to. I just I just wanted to forewarn you. I'm going to be taking notes during the show, and I'm going to need to use a flashlight, which may bother you." So I'm just just forewarning you, but please, he, he could not have been nicer. It's like he just stay if you want to. It, just know this is going to happen. So there's plenty of room to move somewhere else. So I moved somewhere else. The show he writes lovely dialogue and and full robust fleshed out characters. And oh boy, the name act the, the lead actress it, is it Jane Hudishell Hudishell Howdy Shell Howdy Shell. Well, she's magnificent. She's mm. a wonderful performance. Mm. Mm. The show progresses. There are revelations that of unhappy things. This is also the fifth preview, important to point out. And at the 10 minutes before the show end, it takes a wild left turn. And I had no idea what was happening. Really? No, no idea. It's gone from a realistic play to something supernatural or it's a dream or it's a nightmare and i don't know did something happen with the set or the design or did, every did... everyone leaves the set goes to black a cell phone rings and is not answered there's a mysterious shadow through a window there's some loud sounds then total blackness and the audience sat there for a moment and they realized oh gee that's the end of the show Followed by polite applause for the curtain call. So this is what I do in my shyness. I happen to walk out of the theater next to the playwright. And I said, hey, I really enjoyed the show. And he said, well, thank you so much for coming. He said, you know, I, it means a lot that you came because we're very early in previews and we have a lot to work out. So we, there's a lot of work we have to do on the show, but I'm really glad you were here and thank you for those kind words. It's very helpful. And I said, well, that having been said, I didn't get the ending. I said, I, I you, just... You told him this. I told, told him this. That's fantastic. Yes. And I said, I, I'm sorry. I need things spelled out for me. It was just a little bit beyond my grasp to understand what I was seeing. Wow. And he said, well, he said, thank you. That's, that's very good feedback. Interesting. And then bolted. <laughs> <laughs> Later, I thought... Was this the right thing for me? I, you know, I forget. I spent an afternoon. I spent some money to see this. If I don't understand the gosh darn play, I'm going to tell the playwright I don't understand it. Sure. I'm not a stupid person, but I like things spelled out for me. I don't want to leave the theater scratching my head. I hear you. Well, let me tell you about one of my other, I would say, Booth One experiences in New York when I was there. We recently did an episode where I did an interview with uh, Grammy Award-winning jazz singer Kurt Elling, and I was lucky enough to hook up with Kurt while I was in New York. And lo and behold, he was doing a week at the Cafe Carlisle. Now, I haven't been to the Cafe Carlisle in years and years and years. The Carlisle, of course, is one of the swanky East Side hotels uh, in New York, just off of Fifth Avenue in the park. Places where uh, the place where Mike Nichols uh, lived, place where Elaine Stritch lived. A number of people still live there. But in the 
ground floor, there is the beautiful, stunning lobby. I felt like I was walking into the White House. And I asked the person at the desk, I said, now I haven't been here in years. The, the Bemelman's is around the corner and the cafe says, yes, you just take a ride. You know what? Let me guide you. And she comes all the way around and she's in a beautiful suit and she takes us all around to show us all of the places we need to go. Well, we had a drink in Bemelman's, which is the lovely bar just off of the side of the Cafe Carlisle. And then we were ushered into the Carlisle at our appointed time of having dinner. Had a, it's, cr- it's a cramped room. It's oh. small. Uh, but we had dinner there uh, before the show. Uh, it's only 80 chairs, um, and the tables are crammed together. It's a very close cabaret-style room. You are on top of the singers. And Kurt and his ensemble, they were magnificent. It was a Frank Sinatra tribute show. And Kurt did a little bit of patter between the songs about Frank's career and what he was doing at that point. And then he would do a song based on what period of his life he was in. Magnificent. It was about 75 minutes long. I had wonderful, wonderful time. That was, I, I felt like I was on top of the world. I felt very, well... Booth one you, you can't get You can't get more booth one than the Carlisle. You can't. And in, uh, for those of you out there thinking of going to the Cafe Carlisle to, Carlisle to see anybody or anything, first of all, A, it's very expensive. <laughs> I'll tell you that right off. Um, the food is pretty good, and the service is really, really wonderful. But it's a very tight room, and you'll have a very up close and personal experience with the performer i guarantee you so if you like that kind of thing this is the place to go we had the greatest greatest evening now you went to a cabaret club after one of your shows one night as well roscoe uh, I know it wasn't the Cafe Carlisle. It was uh, a long-time uh, cabaret club that's just off of Broadway called Don't Tell Mama, correct? Right. Yes, this was one of the great mistakes of my lifetime. Don't Tell Mama was having what they built. is like Stanley Z's live variety show, and it listed a number of performers. None of them were names that I recognized except for one, which was Melba Moore. And of course, you know Melba Moore won a Tony Award for for Pearly, in which her big number was "I Got Love," and it's a it's a video that people have probably watched a million times on YouTube. When you and I were in college, everyone had the original cast album to Pearly, and we all loved Melba Moore. And I re- remember someone doing a dance recital, and that being one of the numbers and her dance recital. And I thought, well, this is ridiculous. Melba Moore is not going to... Sh- this is, you know, the product of a diseased mind to think that <laughs> Zelba- Melba Moore is going to show up and sing here. <laughs> so this was one of the evenings that I had seen a 75-minute show. I think I sat through Fool for Love. I wandered over to Don't Tell Mama. I wandered into the back. There were 10 people sitting there, all of whom looked insane. And I said, is the show... Don't you have a show at 10? And she goes, yeah, we'll start a little late. And I thought, I don't think I want to sit here. It was a $25 cover. I thought, I don't think I want to sit here. And there's some crazy guy behind me. And the woman goes, table for one. He goes, no, I'm one of the performers. So I went and sat in the front bar and mm, wasn't feeling it, wasn't having a good time. Like, it, it's, it's a piano bar where they play show tunes. Right, right. He was playing Billy Joel instead, which I see. nothing can set my teeth on edge more than Billy Joel. So I finally wander back to the back room at quarter after 10, open the door, and guess who's performing on stage? Melba Moore. Judy Garland. 
Judy Garland is on stage singing her heart out. Well, of course, it's not Judy Garland. It's a female impersonator. It wasn't Tom Bailey. No, it was uh, Tommy Femia. Okay. Femia. Okay. Who used to play in Chicago once in a while. I recognize the name. Okay. And he's dressed in the Judy Carnegie Hall era dress, and, and he sounds just like her. Oh, my. And it's pretty impressive, so I decide I'll stay. And then the next thing I know, someone's singing behind me, and it's Liza Minnelli. Who has wandered out. Not, of course, the real Liza Minnelli. Of course. But it's suddenly Liza and Judy are on stage together. And, and, you know, it's late enough at night that I found them spectacularly entertaining. And inexplicably, the audience is now packed. They must have come through a different door than I was aware of. So I turn to the waitress at one point and I said, I got here a little late. Did I miss anyone? And she said, yeah, you missed Melba Moore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I said, what? Oh, no. Yes. So after the show, and this was also hilarious, they were, they were filming the show. And at the very end of the show, it was the law of diminished returns played into effect here because as the evening progressed, people became less and less interesting and less and less talented. And at the, the end of the show, which went on for, for nearly two hours, the man who was hosting said... Is there anyone else who wants to perform? And the cameraman goes, yeah, I do. And he (laughs) walked up on stage and started to talk, and suddenly the lights went out and the mic was shut off. (laughs) Well, it was because he was plastered. (laughs) Did I tell you who was in the audience, the the crazy encounter that I had? No. Let's say the show was supposed to start at 10. I'm going to say roughly at 11, 11.30 at night on a Thursday, two extremely elderly women come in to the theater into the room and I thought it's awfully late for them to be out so Mr. Z or whoever the MC was gets up and introduces one of them her name was Joan Copeland the stage actress she was the younger sister of Arthur Miller which meant that she Hmm. was once sister-in-law to Marilyn Monroe Hmm. and that her niece is married to Daniel Day-Lewis and she had appeared how I remembered this I don't know her big movie was The Goddess, which is the crazy film oh, with, sure. with um, Kim Stanley. Kim Stanley. I think she played Kim Stanley's sister in The Goddess. So, of course, I felt the need to walk up to her and say, you were in The Goddess. But what a great movie that is. And she was thrilled that I remembered that. Wow. And then I had the sense to walk away and not engage her in further in conversation. A little brush with greatness. Well, good for you. But, you know, that's that's just New York. You can be sitting somewhere at 11 o'clock at night. You're sitting next to Arthur Miller's sister. You ain't kidding. Well, let me tell you a little bit about a brush with greatness that uh, I had in New York. And you're aware of this, but I'll uh, let our listeners in on it. We do a segment here on Booth One every week where we finish our show with a, something called The Kiss of Death. And we read uh, portions and um, of an obituary. Frequently, that death notice is from the New York Times, and uh, frequently, that New York Times death notice is written by someone named Marguerite Fox, who is one of our favorites. Uh, She's been writing for the obituary department of the New York Times for about 10 years, maybe a little bit longer. Well, I just decided I'm going to be in New York. What the heck? I'll take a flyer. I call her up. Uh, Well, I actually emailed her and said... 
what we did on our podcast, Roscoe, and, and how much of uh, fans we were, and that I was going to be in New York, and I would be delighted if she would grant me a half an hour or 45 minutes of her time to just have a chat. Well, she wrote me back immediately and said, that sounds wonderful. I think we can absolutely set that up while you're here. Exchange of a series of emails. We set it up for a Tuesday morning. She said, why don't you just come to the New York Times offices? And in fact, I'll reserve our audio video room since we'll need a nice quiet space. Like, this is fantastic. So... I show up at the New York Times, which is in a beautiful, brand new, spanking steel and glass building right on 8th Avenue across from the Port Authority. And I get escorted upstairs with our producer. Someone comes down to meet us and they put us in this room and I set up our remote microphone and I say, "Okay, I'm ready. And she dials up Marguerite. What a delightful human being she is. She could not have been more gracious with her time, her honesty, her gregarious comments. So we recorded this. Uh, I have a short interview with her. I'm going to apologize in advance for any defects in the sound quality, but that was just the nature of the directional microphones we were using. And I hope you enjoy it. Why don't we take a listen, Roscoe, okay? Great. Well, Marguerite Fox, thank you for joining me today on... Booth One, it's a pleasure to have you here. May I call you Marguerite? You certainly may, and it's my pleasure to have you here since you are actually in my house, the newsroom of the New York Times. Now, you've been writing in the obituary department of the New York Times for quite a number of years now, haven't you? Since 2004, I've been a full-time obituary writer. And about how many obituaries, just roughly, have you gauged that you've written in that time? Last time I checked, it was edging close to 1,200. 1,200? That's right. So what is that average? About two a week? More. More. We're talking now about breaking news obituaries on deadlines. The obits that are written in advance, of course, are a separate animal. But considering only the dailies, as we call them, uh, each one of us staff writers, there are four of us in the department, does three or four a week on a busy week, particularly if we're shorthanded, it can be five or sometimes even more. Wow. Uh, as you say, you have a lot of things in archive, though, in sort of advanced preparation of possibly someone passing away, either they're very elderly or they're very famous, and you have to have that stuff ready. That's exactly right. We have well over 1,500 advances, as we call them, on file, and that is how a long well-written, heavily researched obit appears in the next day's paper and now on nytimes.com in a matter of minutes as if by magic. Yeah, you don't stay up all night doing research and writing column after column after column because most, most of it is, is already prepared uh, for, for a lot of the uh, uh, people that have passed. For many, one can never account for all of the pre-dead people in the world, and there are always the 27-year-old rock stars that seem to go in a minute in a plane crash or an OD. And so, of course, we obit writers often get caught short. So, indeed, many is the time we have stayed up all night researching and getting uh, 2,500, 3,000 words in the can, often because our editors have been alerted to the fact that someone really important is hanging by a thread. So we drop everything, 
get all these good words into publishable shape, and then inevitably the subject of the obit lives another 20 years. It happens without fail. Two million Americans die annually, and the Times only publishes about 1,000 obituaries a year, roughly. It's been said that the touchstone for deciding who gets an obituary in the New York Times is uh, how hard have you touched history and for how long in order to become history yourself, and uh, who is worthy but not newsworthy. I assume that this is a job for your editors to decide what assignments to hand off. The editors uh, play primarily that godlike role of deciding, as it were, who lives and who dies in our pages in consultation with the writers. All of us have subject specialties. My original training was as a cellist, and my academic degrees are in linguistics, so they will very often ask me to vet people in linguistics, in anthropology, in cognitive sciences, and in classical music. And so in consultation with the writers, the editors decide each day yay or nay for whoever crosses their desks. And then if we choose to do someone, to which writer to assign it and roughly how long it should be. Now, as a reporter, which in essence you are, though with an oddly select news beat, <laughs> which few obituaries that you've written have touched you the most emotionally? Uh, it's got to be difficult to just separate yourself and be um, completely objective about a subject. Can you think of one or two that you've been really affected by or touched by? Well, to speak to the larger question first for a moment, I am often asked quite reasonably oh, you do obits, isn't that depressing? And indeed, when I started the job in 2004, it was something I worried about. I found very quickly, to my immense relief, that obits are almost never depressing because in an obit of, say, a thousand words, maybe a sentence or two will be about the bare-bones fact of the death, and the other 98% of the obit is every bit about this remarkable life, someone who did something, wrote something, made a piece of art, invented something that changed the world in some way. You may have answered this then in this last question. When people find out what you do for a living, what likely is the most typical question they ask you about your job? Is it, don't you find that depressing, or is it something else? It is, don't you find that depressing, but my colleagues and I are very thrilled that increasingly when we go to cocktail parties and the first question after, what's your name, is what do you do, and you say, I write obituaries, Almost always, these days, the answer we get is, obits, that's the first thing I read in the morning. And that's not only very gratifying, but it's quite fascinating. We'd be gratified enough if they said, yes, I read the obits, I enjoy reading them. But almost every single person, and obit writers on other papers get this too, hears that's the first thing I read in the morning. And I've thought about a, a lot about why that might be. I think it speaks to something absolutely primal. You rush to the obit page first thing in the morning to make sure you're not on it. <laughs> and once you've satisfied yourself with this kind of wicked schadenfreude that the stories on that page are about other folks and not about you, then you can sit back and savor them because obits, after all, take their subjects 
from cradle to grave, and that gives them a built-in narrative arc. So they are the most purely narrative thing in any daily newspaper, and who doesn't love to read a good story? I think everyone loves to read a good story, and, and may I say that you tell the story almost uh, better than just about anyone, which is uh, why I'm a big fan of, of your writing, not just of obituaries, but uh, your writing in general. Now listen, you frequently have to speak with friends and family who are bereaved recently due to a death, uh, maybe even that day or the day before. Is that the most difficult part of your research when you've been given a writing assignment? It can be hard, and we are obliged to speak to family members or a close family friend to confirm the fact of the death. You'll notice that in most times obits, we have that somewhat obtrusive second paragraph that says the cause was a heart attack, his family said, or simply his family confirmed the death. And the reason is that many years ago, before I was in the department, we inadvertently killed off someone who was not in fact dead. And needless to say, her family was aghast. The switchboards lit up. Uh, there was all kinds of hell to pay, a major retraction in the paper. And so now we have this ironclad rule that we have to say not only that someone has died, but we have to attribute how we know to a source who is himself in a position to know. Have you ever found it very a very difficult situation where you've called a family or called a family member and they've been maybe too bereaved to speak with you, or are they happy to hear from you at the New York Times? Well, I must say that it is a testament to the power of the times that people, although of course they are bereaved, they sometimes quite understandably break down on the phone, they're exhausted, they've had no sleep, they're grieving. In some 1,200 obits, I think I have had three families in that whole time who have refused to speak to me. I'll take those odds, three out of 1,200. So people, although lay people may not know our phrase of art, news judgment, they say it in other ways. They will very often say, oh, we're so gratified that the Times has chosen to recognize the work of our father, uncle, aunt, whoever the person is in its news pages. So people get it. Uh, yes, you are calling bereaved people. It is a very strange situation socially, and there is nothing in Emily Post to cover it. Because <laughs> if you reduce the situation to its elements, what happens is this. You are cold calling a stranger, and you are saying in not quite as many words, hello, you don't know me from Adam, but I'm going to ask very probing biographical questions about someone you loved who just died this morning or yesterday, and then I'm going to put them where a million people can see it. That's a very bizarre social situation, and people are remarkably accommodating considering what it is we're asking them to do. That's quite a, it's quite a task to walk into your office every day and know that you may be making those kinds of phone calls. I, I certainly don't know if, if I envy you or not, um, but uh, it, it's something that has to be done in, in terms of the research. Do you recall your first obit that you wrote for the New York Times? Um, and what was your approach at that point? If you don't recall the first one, but even in early on, I know that you were, you were writing uh, book reviews, you were writing other things for the Times before you got placed into the uh, obituary department. How has your style evolved over time up to this point? 
Well, I do actually recall my first Obit, and the reason I recall it is it hasn't yet been published, and I wrote it exactly 20 years ago. I wrote it in 1995. I joined the Times in 1994 and spent my first 10 years as a copy editor at the Times Sunday Book Review. And while it was a wonderful job, wonderful to be around books and literary people, I hadn't especially trained to be a copy editor and didn't especially envision having a long career doing that. And as the years went by, I got increasingly depressed and I thought, my God, you know, all they're going to put for my epitaph is she changed 100,000 commas into semicolons. And that wasn't quite enough intellectual stimulation for me. So about a year after I joined the book review, I started contributing advance obits freelance because indeed the obituaries editor has the Sisyphean task of having to accumulate written, polished, edited advance obits for all of the eminent pre-dead. It's, you know, it's a logical impossibility, but mm-hmm. one of the things the editor does to build the stockpile is to reach out not only to members of his own department, but to journalists around our newsroom, retired Times people, uh, our correspondents in the bureaus, and so on, to contribute ab- advance obits in their subject areas. I started doing that. The very first one I wrote in 1995 was for a very, very eminent scholar who, true to form, is still going strong, (laughs) and uh, he may well outlive me at this rate. So I may never see that obit in print, but that led to other obits, which led to still others, and eventually in 2004, when a job opened up, I applied for it, and because I have this track record, was lucky enough to get it. So when this eminent scholar does finally meet his maker... What we'll probably see is your obituary from 1990, did you say 94? 95, 95. which, which per uh, protocol will have been updated a number of times, as I've had to go in and do already as this guy lives. He's not only long-lived, he's still very active and productive in his field. So every time he has a new book published or does something else, I go into the obit and drop in a sentence or two. So we constantly, we not only have to write advances, we have to keep them constantly up to date. Sure. Have you ever had to travel for research um, on on someone who you're writing about? I I realize in this day and age of instant communication, one doesn't. But back in the 90s, even the early 2000s, sometimes information wasn't all that much at the ready. Have you ever had to travel anywhere to dig up information about someone? Well, the salient factor these days is not so much the that we're in the age of the internet and the age of instant information, which is also true, but we're in the age of retrenchment. And newspapers simply don't have the budgets to send the writers of advance obits to hither and yon to do research. And indeed, that need has largely been obviated because there is so much information at the ready online. And of course, here in New York, we have great academic libraries of Columbia University, NYU, New York Public Library. So there's actually very little need these days and in this city to have to go digging. 
you've uh, you do a marvelous job of making the potentially humorous feel vital and life affirming. We talked a little bit about some of uh, the uh, obituaries we've we've uh, discussed on our our show in the past, such as Vivian Nicholson and Don Featherstone, Vic Firth, the creator of the modern drumstick, the stovetop stuffing inventor, the you know the Anthora coffee cup in- inventor. Do you ever have a good laugh? when you're first given an assignment, and then get down to the art of crafting a rich tapestry of life for that person? Well, I think there is a class of obits that obit writers respond to with delight when they get the assignment. And those indeed tend to be the ones of inventors of campy cultural artifacts. So yes, Don Featherstone, the man who invented the pink plastic lawn flamingo, over the years, I've done the inventor of the Frisbee, the inventor of Etch-a-Sketch, uh, Ruth Seams, the home economist who invented stovetop stuffing, all of those. And we can pretty much guarantee that in the age of Twitter, those obits will burn up the Twitter sphere because baby boomers are instantly plunged into a fit of childhood nostalgia. These are the people who made the world that we all grew up in. And it's endlessly fascinating to see there are these artifacts we all know that came from somewhere. They were invented by people who are not household names. You know, how many people know the name Don Featherstone or Ruth Seams or Fred Morrison, the man who invented what was first called the Pluto Platter, which became the Frisbee. Mm. And yet all of these inventions, all of these cultural phenomena have an ideology, and they come from someone who, because they took a different route to work one day in 1947, stumbled on something, invented something, had an idea that changed the world. And to be able to pinpoint that narratively as a writer is absolutely delightful and absolutely thrilling. A case in point is um, the obituary that appeared today. Today is October 13th, 2015, and one of your obituaries appeared today in the, in the Times of for John Berg, who made album covers for uh, Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen. He, he chose and designed the, cl- the classic cover for Born to Run, uh, the Barbara Streisand album. I can see how baby boomers or people of a certain age will look at these, and they actually printed the covers on the obituary this time, which was quite something. Um, very, very eye-drawing. Uh, I can see how they'll be very, very attracted to that. Have you ever been assigned to, and I realize it's your job, so you may not be able to do this, but have you ever been assigned or asked to write a death notice that you had to turn down either because of personal reasons or uh, the subject matter or some other reason whatsoever? Have you ever had to say, I'm just not the right person for this? It's very rare. And because our department is small, there are only four full-time writers to keep up with the unremitting volume of deaths and the unremitting volume of obits in our pages, uh, it is really incumbent on each of us to come off the bench and be ready to do anything. The only instances in which I turn something down are if uh, I am ethically compromised in some way, if in the rare cases where the, su- the subject is someone with whom I've had a financial relationship, someone to whom I'm related. 
1999, when my own father died, he was a reasonably well-known scientist. He had a news obit in the Times, and a few people asked me naively, are you going to write it? And the answer is, of course not. That sort of thing might fly in a small-town paper where you're writing something personal and sentimental, but Mm -hmm. our news obituaries are news articles reported and written from a neutral, disinterested stance, just like any other news article in the the paper. Uh, There are a number of New York Times-style guidelines when it comes to crafting an obituary. For instance, you always say, he or she died. There's no sort of parsing of words there of passed away or met their maker or shuffled off this mortal coil or something like that. It's very concise. It's very clear. Are there other style guidelines that you're required to follow when you're writing obituaries in this way? Or is it really up to your personal professionalism to figure that out? Well, the style guidelines that obtain for news obits are those that obtain for news articles throughout the paper. So again, we have the same rigorous standards of fealty to history, fealty to the truth, balance, neutrality, and so on. But indeed, we don't use these dewy-eyed Victorian euphemisms like passed away. We will sometimes get families, particularly families of people who have not been in public life, these sort of unsung backstage players, the people who invented things but aren't necessarily well-known. Families, in, in all good faith, will say, oh, please put in he touched the lives of everyone he ever knew. Please put in he died surrounded by his loving family. And while we're sure those things are true, we know, although we're not going to break the family's heart by saying so, we know those sentiments will immediately wind up on the cutting room floor because they have no place in a rigorous news obit like ours. Mm. That said, happily, Times obits of late are very amenable to incorporating humor where appropriate. And again, that gets us back to things like the inventor of the pink flamingo and the frisbee. And that is why those obits are a particular delight for a writer to get to do. Yeah. I can see that. Here's a weird question. Maybe it's more of an observation. I was reading um, the tea book, Death Becomes Her, which is a collection of some of your obituaries from recent years, like from 2010 and on. I found the oddest coincidence, and I have no idea really what this means, but I wanted to bring it up. You were born in Glen Cove, New mm-hmm. York. One of the gentlemen that you profiled in that book, uh, New York Times journalist John McCandlish Phillips, Jr., was also born in Glen Cove. And another one, Leslie Buck, the designer, as I mentioned, of the Anthora coffee cup, he passed away in Glen Cove in 2010. Is that more than coincidence, or do they go, oh, Glen Cove, got to go to Margalit for that one? No, the, nobody knows where I was born. Um, <laughs> And you know it only because you looked it up in a reference book. But certainly my editors aren't going to have that information in their brains. Why should they have that cluttering up their brains when much more useful stuff can go into that slot? Uh, No, what it is is it's a coincidence that is a function of sheer volume. When you write as many obits as I had, you will inevitably find someone who was born where you were born, died when you were born, was born on the same day you were, hopefully not the same year because hopefully they're much older. So again, it's purely a function of statistical volume. 
You've written, I want to plug a couple of your, your other writings. You have written a couple of books, one called Talking Hands, about an isolated Bedouin village in Israel where a unique type of sign language has intrinsically evolved. Another called uh, Riddle of the Labyrinth, which I have here, centering on uh, Alice Kober, a classics professor in the 30s and 40s who played a key role in solving one of the 20th century's great academic riddles, uh, how to read a 3,400-year-old script known as Linear B, which was unearthed amid the ruins of the Minoan civilization in Crete. Uh, both excellent reads, by the way. Excellent. Very Thank well you. done. Thank and you. Are you working on any new projects uh, outside of your New York Times writing um, currently that you might give us a brief glimpse into? I am. I do like... Uh uh, as a kind of counterweight to the ferocious daily sprint of Times work, I do also like to have the marathon of a book going. So I'm doing another narrative nonfiction book. This one is historical true crime about a murder in the Edwardian era and the long e efforts in the age well before modern forensics to try and solve it. Wow. Well, I, I am going to look forward to that. No, nothing I like more than a sort of a true crime mystery story. Uh, Margalie, we do something with our guests, and I'd like to sort of finish up with that, and I hope you're going to be game for it. Um, there's, a, there's sort of a parlor game called Chat Pack with something about what they can't find out on the Internet. So if you don't mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fan out a couple of these cards here that have, oh, sort of in-depth, maybe even trivial questions on them uh, about yourself. And I wonder if you would pick one and you and I can answer them together and we can, maybe you can learn a little bit more. If you're game for it, I'd be pleased Fair if enough. you would. Fair enough. All right. I will pick one at random. I feel like I'm drawing the short straw here. You may indeed be. Uh, why don't you go Should ahead I and read, read that for us? If, like the newspaper or milk, you could have anything of your choice delivered to your doorstep every morning, what particular item would you want it to be? Oh, my goodness. Now we're going to have a lot of dead air while I think about it. Uh, maybe I'll go first while you think about Please. it. Please. And, and your answer could be different five minutes from now. I'm just wondering what your answer oh, is I now. Oh, I do know. I think I'm going to go with uh, cannolis. Mm. <laughs> I, if, that could, if those could be delivered to my house, I would be a very, very happy person. It is eminently reasonable to have cannolis at every hour of the day. It is. And certainly here in New York and Little Italy, we have some great fresh ones. Nothing but the best cannolis in the world here in, in New right. York. Right, and also on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx where there's a big Italian diaspora. That's actually some of the very best Homemade Italian uh, I, I should stuff. try to get up there. Yes. Now, how about you? What would you like to have delivered uh, to your house? Like this is going to sound very obscure, and none of your male readers will understand this. I would have spinning fiber delivered to my house every day. Now, what is spinning fiber? I am a spinning wheel spinner. That's one of the things I do to relax from here. And what you do on a spinning wheel is take loose fiber, be it wool or silk or flax or whatever, and you spin it into yarn, just as people have been doing for hundreds of years. These days, of course, you can go online and buy beautifully prepared and combed and carded and dyed fiber from any one of a range of hippie dyers. They all seem to be in Vermont or Oregon, lovely places <laughs> of, like of that. Of course, yes. And you sit at your spinning wheel. You have a nice old black and white movie on TV, and you have the wheel is turning mesmerically, rhythmically, your feet are treadling, 
your respiration is slowing down and you have this beautiful tactile, beautiful colored fiber streaming through your hands as you are spinning it into yarn. So I would have a new kind of fiber and dyed in some beautiful color materialize at my door every single day. Wow, that's that's completely unexpected. Is it hard to find spinning fiber? It's hard to find in New York because by definition spinning fiber is an agrarian product and so it is generally produced in places where people can keep sheep. You don't see a lot of people keeping sheep in their apartment in Manhattan, at least I hope not. Uh, I've never seen a single one. <laughs> and you won't. Uh, so yes, it here in Manhattan, one pretty much has to order it from out of town. I know you have to get back to your uh, column writing, but if you have time, let's do one more card. What's it say? <sighs> If you had to choose your own epitaph of eight words or fewer, besides names and dates, what would it say? Well, this is seven. She didn't screw anything up too badly. (laughs) Okay, that's fair enough. I think mine would be something like, uh, he was kind and honest and made people laugh. That would be probably something I would be proud to have on my um, tombstone. And touch the lives of everyone he ever knew. You're forgetting that. (laughs) I'm not forgetting that. Hopefully someday I will do something significant in in a way that I touch history or make history that uh, I will then get a file of my own at the New York Times and perhaps you will um, write it for me. Marguerite, it's been an absolute pleasure. I do want to say one thing. Congratulations on the 2015 Front Page Award for Beat Writing, which is given by the News Women's Club of New York. They've been giving that award since uh, the the 30s, I think. It's for extraordinary coverage by a single newswoman, and you're the recipient this year uh, at a black tie dinner in November at some point. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. That is awesome for you. This has been a great pleasure. I appreciate the time you've taken, and uh, I know our listeners will be thrilled to uh, hear your comments and remarks. Thanks again. My great pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed being in Marguerite's presence. Uh, We're big fans of hers, and I hope that you'll be big fans of hers uh, after listening to that as well. What'd you think, Roscoe? I think it was fantastic. What was she wearing? She was dressed in very workmanlike clothes. When I say workmanlike, she's a journalist for the New York Times. Uh, fairly casual. She was mostly, she was in black. She couldn't have been more personable and couldn't have been nicer. And you could just get the sense from, just from the moment I met her, that this is a really smart person. I could just tell that she knows how to put one word after another in a way that not a lot of people can. Uh, it was it was it was fantastic. I could have stayed there for like two hours, but we we had sort of a forty five minute window in order to do this, and I had to edit some things down. So uh, she couldn't have been more gracious. Oh. It was one of the great booth one experiences oh, of my that's life. So fantastic! <laughs> I wish you could have been there. This is a good segue for us to go into our kiss of death this week. This death notice is not written by Marguerite Fox, unfortunately, but it is from the New York Times. And it is a uh, notice about a Hollywood child star, which 
is very ironic because, well, maybe not ironic, maybe coincidental. We did a profile of Gene Darling last podcast, also a child star. Uh, this is another person of the same era. This is Dickie Moore, Hollywood child star who was 89 when he passed away. Dickie Moore, a public relations executive who was known as Dickie uh, when he was a Hollywood child star, playing the movie's first talking Oliver Twist and later giving Shirley Temple her first on-screen kiss. Were you aware of that, Roscoe, that he played Oliver Twist? In, in the, the, the 1936 version? The original film. Mr. Moore was not yet a year old. Not yet a year old. Did you hear what I said? Yes, not, not yet, yet a, a year old. And evidently cute as a button when he made his movie debut in the 1927 silent feature The Beloved Rogue, which starred John Barrymore as the 15th century French poet and gadabout Francois Villon. Young Dickie, uncredited, played Villon as an infant. He very quickly became a busy youngster, appearing in dozens of features and short films, many before he turned the age of 12, including Blonde Venus in 32, in which he played Marlena Dietrich's son, and the story of Louis Pasteur from 1936, in which he played a boy saved from rabies by Paul Muni. I remember that vividly because that's such a such an impactful part of that film in 1932 and 33 he appeared regularly in our gang shorts now 32 and 33 is slightly after uh gene darling right. who was who was in the 26 27 range um but then she got too old for the part i guess he appeared in those shorts the series was known as the little rascals as i mentioned last mm -hmm. podcast when it appeared later on television and he was six when he played the role in hollywood's first sound adaptation of charles dickens oliver twist which was 1933 Hmm. Six years old. He wrote a book decades later. Uh, he was uh, about the particular and not terribly nourishing life of child actors. Um, it was a 1984 book called Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, But Don't Have Sex or Take the Car. <laughs> <laughs> In which he described his own experiences and those of others whom he interviewed. He recalled that when he was eight, he was so used to inscribing autographed pictures for fans that he signed his mother's birthday card from your friend Dickie Moore. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Mr. Moore claimed that the much-ballyhooed kiss he gave Shirley Temple in a movie in 1942 called Miss Annie Rooney, uh, he was 16 and she was 14, was his first kiss on screen or off, though Shirley Temple, as she admitted in her auto, uh, autobiography, she couldn't say the same. Know what I mean? Know no. what I mean? He was married three times and divorced twice. Sounds familiar. In 1988, he married the actress Jane Powell, who had also been a child star. Dickie Moore, dead at 89, child star. Um, I thought that was a great companion piece, not only to the Marguerite Fox um, interview we just talked about. <laughs> she talks about the near dead or the already dead. And uh, last week's uh, Jean Darling obituary. What did you think? Did you know Dickie Moore at all? Never met him. But he had, there were some interesting connections. Jean Darling is in Little Rascals, Our Gang. Dickie Moore in Little Rascals, Our Gang. He was also Gary Cooper's little brother in Sergeant York. That's one of yes, my favorite movies. Yes, I as, love that as part. A, how old would he have been? Um, 16 or so? Yeah, 15, 16, sure. So he's a little brother in Sergeant York. Also, someone who died recently is Joan Leslie. And she played the wife of Gary Cooper in Sergeant York. And this is funny. I loved her in that movie. She's so beautiful. She's in that so film. beautiful. Oh. 
and she's like she, Teresa Wright in that film. She's so that's that's what she looks. That's mm-hmm. the kind of look she has. That that's that's funny. You could should say that because they they came to stardom at exactly the same time. No kidding. Nineteen forty one. Wow. And she, Teresa Wright. I don't know if I can recite this. I know this. Teresa Wright has the distinction of having been nominated for an Oscar for each of her first three performances. Yeah, yeah. Joan Leslie, Sergeant York, and Carrie Cooper went on to win the Academy Award for that, mm-hmm. right? The very next year, what was her next film in which she played the girlfriend and then the wife of James Cagney in Yankee Doodle Dandy, for which he won the Academy Award? Sure, sure. And then interestingly... She made she- him look good. And she did show up. I, we, I think every broadcast we will talk about Cinecon. One year she came to Cinecon, and I was... Flab- We're talking about Joan Leslie. Joan now. Leslie. And I was flabbergasted because it, it never occurred to me, and this sounds a little... I don't mean this to be unkind... This is more than 60 years after both of these films were made, maybe 70 years. And I thought, how can this woman possibly still be alive? I had to go home and look at my books to see how old she was, but she was there. She was vital. She was excited to be there. Still beautiful. And she's one of, there are many women who are beautiful in their 20s and 30s, and they just have great genes and great cheekbones and bone structure, and they stay beautiful. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For the rest of their lives. She was one of them. Well, this has been a terrific follow-up episode to our previous. We will see you again on the podcast airways. Um, say goodnight, Gracie. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Join us next time on Booth, Booth One. one.